Welcome to Life, Death, and the Space Between podcast. I'm Dr. Amy Robbins, a licensed clinical psychologist and medium. If this is your first time to the podcast, welcome. If you've been here for a while, thanks for listening. Today's podcast is about making meaning. Dr. Lise DeGeer is a clinical psychologist in private practice. She grew up on the East Coast, the lone surviving child of unsettled and iconoclastic parents. At the age of four, she was third degree burned on 65% of her body as the result of both maternal and corporate negligence. After the fire, she spent most of her childhood in the hospital, undergoing countless medical procedures. Dr. DeGeer has waited 50 years to write her life story. She waited until her entire first family died, four by suicide and one by AIDS. Now, a sole survivor, she recently completed her first memoir, Flashback Girl, Lessons on Resilience from a Burn Survivor. After experiencing tremendous tragedy throughout her life, Lise has been able to turn her life into one of meaning. This is her story. The story begins at age four. Uh, My family, we were on a vacation and my mother was going to start the barbecue that night. And she grabbed what she thought was lighter fluid, but what was not lighter fluid. And she poured this substance over um, charcoal and went to light the fire. And I was standing right next to her when she did this. And uh, the charcoal didn't light. So she grabbed that same fluid and poured it back over the coals again. And in that moment, a tiny little flame shot up through the can and exploded all over both my mother and me. My mother took one look at our situation and ran through the fire and left me in it. And I was trapped uh, behind the flames, backed up into the railing of this porch, uh, completely abandoned. My father, though, saw me on the other side of the porch, and he, he hopped over the fence, and he ran around, and he was just able to reach up and pull me through that fence. Uh, he rolled me in the pine needles, which didn't extinguish the fire, and he finally carried me down to the lake. We were on, on vacation on the lake, threw me into the lake. Uh, the fact that Lise survived this horrific event was truly a miracle. I was burned in 1967, and in those days, it was just a miracle for a little girl to survive 65-degree burns. Um, but I did. I was taken to sort of, this is the, there's always a, um, on the one hand, this terrible thing, and on the other hand, this wonderful thing. Mm-hmm. That seems to be a theme of my life, that these things come together always. So on the one hand, I was in this terrible fire that my mother abandoned me in. On the other hand, I was happened to be on vacation near the best Burns Hospital in the country, which was Massachusetts General, and I was transferred down there, and they kept me alive. Lise and her mother both shared the same hospital, but her mother rarely came to visit her, and Lise often found herself alone at the age of only four, 
trying to survive this tragedy. So I was mostly in the hospital alone. My father would visit me on the weekends and uh, I made it. Despite having survived, Lise had a long road of recovery ahead of her. Just recovery from burns, if you don't know anything about it and why would you, is widely considered to be the most painful thing in the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I've had, I don't know, at least 50 operations, um, every one of which was excruciatingly painful. I lost my, my, my neck, my chin, my bottom lip in the fire. My arms refused to my side. And all of that had to be redone and reconnected and regrafted many, many times to make me look like I wasn't a monster because I really did look like a monster in the beginning. Mm-hmm. My cousin tells the story about seeing me for the, for the first time and running upstairs and crying. Lise was now trying to figure out how she could lead a new and different life now that she looked so different. I was trying to get on with my life as a kid. Mm -hmm. And some kids were wonderful with that. Some kids were very kind. Again, on the one hand, this. On the other hand, that. Some kids could not have been more kind and generous and accepting. And some kids ran past me in the morning going, Hmm. and telling me how ugly I was. And that happened every day, too. Mm-hmm. How long before you were back in school? And I was in kindergarten the next year. But back and forth from the hospital to right. kindergarten, from the hospital to kindergarten, from the hospital to first grade, et cetera, et cetera. Lise not only experienced this physical trauma, but also several emotional traumas throughout the course of her life. I would say the emotional trauma from being burned was more about um, the pain of being excluded and different and bullied. And I think anybody who's been different as a child can relate to that feeling of not fitting in, not being normal, not being able to do the things or look like other people do. Um, It was also very traumatic as a young woman dating or not dating. Um, yeah. So there was that. Mm -hmm. But as I alluded to, there were other things going on in my family as well. Uh, I came from a family that, um, I would say meant well, but uh, were really very limited and troubled. Both my parents were very self-involved people. You could hang a diagnostic label on them if you wanted to, or you could not. Right, right. Very, very, very self-focused people, very much preoccupied with what was going on with them and not really prepared to be parents, I think I would say. And probably not parents then to a child who had physical disfigurement and then the emotional needs on top of that. Absolutely, absolutely. And although you might think that it was me that face the the real brunt of that, it really wound up being my older brother, who was not burned and not disfigured and didn't go through all of that. But he was still in the same family I was. And he also was dealing with our parents who were very limited and self-involved and traumatized. And he had very little attention. My older brother, Mark, was very much my hero. He was the Mm -hmm. kindest, most brilliant person. He took great care of me. Uh, but he didn't take very good care of himself. Mm-hmm. Suffered with depression, refused to get help, did a lot of drugs, 
and he wound up killing himself when he was 19. The trauma of losing her brother, who was 19 years old, five years older than she was, was almost more than being burned in the fire. For me, I would say that was actually the worst trauma. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was my best parent. The challenges of Lisa's life didn't end with the suicide of her brother. Her mother also committed suicide, and her father died of AIDS. My father um, eventually came out of the closet um, in the 90s. Um, God bless him. My my parents divorced um, in the 70s, and eventually he came out of the closet. And um, just in time to unfortunately get himself hooked up with a guy who was not honest about his HIV status. Mm -hmm. And my dad wound up dying from AIDS. Mm -hmm. My mother did take her life. The other two suicides in my family that you were thinking of, I think, are I had a stepfather who killed himself and a stepsister who killed herself. So four suicides in all, one death from AIDS, and one devastating fire. And here I am. In listening to Lisa's story, one might wonder how does someone survive so many tragedies? But Lisa figured out a way to make meaning out of what had been a very difficult life. My life is surprisingly beautiful. I am happily married. I have two daughters who are doing very well. They're 22 and 20. I am a psychologist in private practice. I've done well. I have lots of friends. I have the kind of life that I think most people would look at and say, ooh, I want her life. Mm-hmm. Yes, they knew <laughs> the story of how I got, I got my life, and then they would say, I don't want that life. What do you feel has helped you get here? Because I know, and you probably know, there's so much in the literature about psychological resilience. Yeah. And what, whether it's something that is inherent in us whether it's something we develop over time. Mm-hmm. For you, what do you attribute it to? Because you were able to really overcome what for many would have been insurmountable yeah. circumstances. And that question is really what has driven me for decades now to understand. Honestly, I would take that back to my, when my brother died that was what really got me is like, why is he dead? And why am I here? Because he was the golden child. He was the genius. He had everything going for him. And I totally did not, but he's gone and I'm here. So I have been contemplating this question for really decades. Um, I think that there are some aspects of resilience that are inborn and some that you can learn and some that I acquired through other people's help. So the things that were inborn to me, I think, are that I'm just sort of an inherently cheerful person. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm friendly. I'm upbeat. I tend to see the best in things. And that's just how I am. I've always been that way. And that attracts help. So, so even people though, were inherently drawn to you because of that. That's what I think. Mm-hmm. Because again, I was, I was neglected by my parents. I have to say that's just the truth of it. I was emotionally neglected by them. 
But I've had so many people who've been very kind to me. And I think they were kind because I was this cheerful, friendly, upbeat person that I drew kindness. I didn't know I was drawing kindness, but I did. Mm -hmm. Um, In my reading in the literature on resilience, one of the things that they say uh, is not inborn is the ability to ask for help, the ability to receive help. I've always been very open to that. Mm -hmm. If somebody gives me an idea, I'm like, great. You know, (laughs) if somebody wants to... um, I'm not ashamed to say I have a problem or that I, I, I could use some assistance. And, you know, not everybody wants to help me, but a lot of people have. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that anybody can do, right? Yes. I mean, I think with a cheerful disposition, you know, for people who might be listening, they're thinking, well, that's not me. I don't have a cheerful disposition. I don't. You know, there are some people who naturally draw people to them, but if someone's not one of those people, that doesn't mean that there isn't hope for them. Right. Absolutely. And, and that is, I think you're absolutely right that that is one of those things that can be learned about resilience. There are things about resilience that we can learn. Um, another thing that I think can be learned about resilience is that uh, is the ability to make meaning out of our suffering. So what I mean by that is not, uh, not necessarily a traditional religious meaning, although that if, if that's your thing, that's great. Uh, but for me, uh, for example, I make meaning out of my suffering in that I believe because I have been through such terrible things that I'm able to sit with others who have been through terrible things in a way that is um, open and warm and kind. And it gives me great satisfaction to be able to help other people who are in a dark place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, therapist to therapist, there, there really is, I don't think, anything more meaningful in this life. I don't know if you, you might feel similarly, to be able to sit with someone in their pain and not judge it and not fix it for them because, you know, certainly in your circumstance, right, there, there wasn't. And in most people's, there really can't be fixing particularly of what happened in the past. Right. There can only be moving forward from that. So when you say make meaning, how did you come to make meaning out of everything that you experienced? I guess one answer, and this is only a very, it's a part of it, but... I was in therapy myself, you know, quite a few times with some very gifted therapists who helped me through things. So that's mm-hmm. part of it. You know, mm-hmm. was that engaging in that whole process myself of how did I get here? Where can I go from here? And is there anything good that's come out of this? I've, I've contemplated those questions for myself, mm-hmm. but I'm taking what I can from it and building as rich a, a growth place from it as I can, mm-hmm. whether that's, you know, in helping my clients, whether that's just in being a person. Um, I'm, I'm, the, the book that I'm working on now is designed to connect with other people who are suffering all over this country, hopefully. <laughs> world, <laughs> um, right. Hopefully to say, look, you might 
also be the most unfortunate person that you know. But that doesn't mean it has to stop there or that your story has to end there. And maybe your story can be beautiful too. Like keep your head up, keep going. Mm-hmm. Never know. Mm-hmm. What mm-hmm. Good can also happen to you. Well, and it's interesting because like you said about your brother, if people probably looked at the two of you, it would have been more likely that you would have ended up Absolutely. perhaps ending your own life. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that part, I think, to me, remains shocking. Mm-hmm. But I will tell you, it's so funny. I have his, his baby picture. When I do a presentation about him, I have his baby picture next to my baby picture. And his baby picture, he looks so somber and serious as a baby. Mm-hmm. And my baby picture is like, ah! you know, like exuberant and laughing and smiling. And you can see right away temperament mm-hmm. and born mm-hmm. temperament. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that may be, you know, I always like to look at things from a spiritual and psychological perspective that maybe this was this. People have listened to my previous podcasts on kind of soul contracts and things like that, 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 this was kind of the deal he contracted. Yeah. Sometimes it's hard in the midst of, of such pain to think why would someone, you know, even someone like you, why would you come to this earth to have experienced what you've experienced? Mm-hmm. But it seems to me you've made such beautiful meaning of a life. I, that is my goal and I think that is my purpose and you know it's funny because I, I have a practice that's what I do for for you know for my day job mm-hmm. and, um, and I know that people come in and they don't know my whole story but they certainly can walk in and see that I have scars and I think in some ways my scars are always speaking to people even if I'm never talking about them because not never but I, I don't you know I don't mm-hmm. talk in session, I really don't. Right, right. They're, they're there, they're talking, saying mm-hmm. like, look, look, you can get through terrible things. Right. And I think that there, I wrote my, my dissertation on patients seeing their therapist outside the therapeutic space, which is interesting because now I'm doing a podcast, which is clearly outside the therapeutic space, right? Yeah. <laughs> and the, the no, and I, I'm similar to you, like how this podcast has sort of shifted things, but what I disclosed in sessions was pretty limited as my training. Yeah. But my guess would be that your showing up in the way that you do physically has probably allowed for tremendous growth for your patients because they can have all kinds of fantasies about what your experience was. Mm-hmm. But in in some way, they, they, I would imagine they think about what you've overcome to be where you are, even if they don't know that for right. sure. And, and sometimes if this comes up in some way, and I'm sure you've heard this too, like that, that fallback answer you can get from clients of like, oh, well, then my pain means nothing. It's ridiculous of me to complain. And I'm always like, no, you know, pain is pain. Mm-hmm. It, it can be high-level tragedy pain, and it can be just something that pretty minor, but human pain is human pain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and who are we to determine where that 
kind of where that love level is, right? Like what I would think is excruciatingly painful, the person sitting next to me might think, I can't believe you're reacting in that way. Mm -hmm. But my experience is my experience. Yeah, I, mm -hmm. I, can, I can imagine that too. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit more about your book? I would love to. Thank you. I've written my memoir and uh, it is, it starts with the fire and covers what it is like to be burned, what it's like to be burned medically, what it's like to be burned psychologically. Um, I talk about being bullied, uh, which I think is something that a lot of people either have experienced themselves or are watching their kids experience. Mm -hmm. I talk about surviving my crazy family and the therapy that I was in myself and how that helped me. Mm -hmm. um, what it was like to look for love as a woman who looked different, which I think, again, a lot of women can relate to. They may not be burned, but they may not feel themselves to be the physical bit of perfection they're told they're supposed to be in order to find someone to love them. Mm -hmm. And... All along, the message is, hopefully, tragedies happen, life can be brutal, um, but don't count yourself out and don't count out the people you love. Mm -hmm. Try to show up with love and hope and we'll see what happens, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and the beauty that can be found yeah. in the midst of, of all of this. Yeah, and that's sometimes the very things that make us suffer and cause us such pain can wind up giving a lot of meaning to our lives. Mm -hmm. You don't want to live in the space of morbidity all the time, but it can be really powerful to live in a space of, of you know, tragedy can strike at any moment because then you can appreciate some of the beauty mm -hmm. more fully. You don't have to wait for that tragedy to happen. To have these moments of beauty. Yeah. And I think as you're mentioning that, I honestly think that has been one of the gifts of what I've been through is um, it's very easy for me to feel, for me to feel appreciative. Um, I think, you know, when I'm with my family or when I'm with my friends, I meet, might be the one most likely to say, what a beautiful day or what a great meal or I'm so glad we're spending time together. And I'm not saying that other people don't think those things, but I think I'm just very inclined to notice them mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, if I'm not suffering, I'm like, wow. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. If you are interested in learning more about Dr. Lise Daguerre and her work, you can find her at www leasedgear.com. Her book is not yet out, but you can follow her on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. And this way, when it does get released, you will be the first to know. Thanks again for listening. Like what you heard today and want to hear more? Curious about what comes next and what it all means? You can subscribe on iTunes. Just go to podcasts and find life death and the space between and hit subscribe. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Dr. Amy Robbins. Ask me any questions you might have. Let me know what else you'd love to hear about or just share your story. I can't wait to hear from you.